This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Why Is Everyone Yelling with Lindsay Hyde. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thanks for being here this week. I apologize. We did not get an episode out last week. I was traveling. I was in Chicago for the Chicago Marathon and days got away and we just didn't get it done. I am excited, however, for a brand new episode this week with Dr. Alexandra Solomon. She's a therapist, professor, speaker, author, wife, mom, CrossFitter. She has her PhD in counseling psychology at Northwestern. And she's a faculty member in the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern University and a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern University. She has a new book out called Love Every Day, 365 Relational Self-Awareness Practices to Help You Grow Your Relationship. She's also the author of the book Loving Bravely, Taking Sexy Back. She has over 220,000 Instagram followers where she gives relationship advice over there. Um, This new book is one of those books, it's a daily book. So you just read one page a day and it's packed with ideas and ways to strengthen your current relationships. We talk about so many great things in this episode. We talk about relationships and love and sex and parenting. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed the conversation. If you do enjoy the podcast, uh, you can leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. I know I say this every week, but it really is a huge help in potential new listeners finding us and growing this podcast. Sharing it on your social media is also super helpful. You can also support the show at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Lindsay Hine. All right, friends, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Alexandra Solomon. All right, friends, today on the podcast, we have Dr. Alexandra Solomon on the show. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lindsay. Uh, how are you doing today? You are on quite the book tour. <laughs> this is quite a week. You're getting me, yeah, right in the middle of of this week. So I'm more. I'm really happy to be uh, here with you. But I'm. I think I'm that. Uh, well, I'm sure there's a running analogy that you could make, but I feel like I'm a little <laughs> bit, a little bit on fumes. Like I, you know, that kind of. I'm excited. I feel present, but I also feel like I'm pretty soon going to crash. Well, this is your third book that has recently come out, Love Every Day. It is. It is. So, but you've learned, I'm sure, along the way that it's like when book comes out, it's hustle mode, like get all the interviews, do all the things. When do you decide to say yes? When do you decide to say no? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, I mean, I, the nice thing at this point in my career is I have a team that helps mm-hmm. me with the yeses and nos because mm-hmm. I tend to be a <laughs> yes person. So it's really nice for me to have somebody else on that boundary deciding what's a yes and, and what's a no. And sometimes I push back and I say, I don't like your no, but, um, but by and large, it's, it's really nice. I mean, I think all of this, writing a book, launching a book, all of it is such a, it's just so collaborative. It's, it's teamwork. And so I, um, when you've got people around you that you trust, then it's easy to like lean into their um, guidance and preferences. So wife, mom, therapist, professor, speaker, author, crossfitter, what am I missing? 
sister and daughter. I'm feeling mm-hmm. very much like a daughter these days. I've got, an, I don't know where you're at in your family system, but I've got an, a mama who's aging and I'm sort of slowly by surely uh, loosening the grip of her <laughs> desire to manage and like be like, let me care for you. I'm going to make this appointment for you, you know, and that sort of interesting sandwich generation kind of experience. So I would say mm-hmm. daughter and sister feel very present to me as well these days. Who was that? Dr. Becky had a podcast episode on that. Did you listen to that? No, I have not. On the sandwich generation. One of my friends um, shared that. That's interesting you bring that up because just this morning, one of my kids had this like uh, infection looking thing on his leg. And what do I do? I take a picture, I send it to my mom and I say, what, what would you do? You know, I'm 40. My mom's, she's young. She's 62. But I'm like, and then I looked at my boys and I was like, I hope grandma's still alive when you're 40 and you have kids because I feel like she'll still be the better person. <laughs> I may still not know what the hell to do with this thing. <laughs> yeah. That's it's, cute. it's a weird, it's a weird time though. Like I'm still, my mom is still fairly young. Yeah. My kids are still young. Tell me about what this is like in your life. I know that's not exactly what we're talking about today, but since you brought it up, I'm curious how you're walking through that. <sighs> Well, what it brings up for me are lots it's it's a chance, okay, what it is is a chance for me to again look at and heal my own issues around control. Mm-hmm. So I was texting with my sister last night, something I was frustrated about um, in terms of you know my mom's my mom's insight you know to me i was I was wanting to label my mom's behavior as stubborn, like just mm-hmm. let me help, help me help you, you know, and my sister was reminding me of like, letting go and letting people have their own experiences. And I was like, are you, are you kidding me? This is again what I got to deal with? Like as if I haven't dealt with it 50 million times in parenting my children or as if I don't deal with it with my clients. Like my urge and desire to overfunction goes so deep. And so it was like, ah, oh, are you kidding? Like wherever you go, there you are. So that is what I'm, that is the me part of it is really feeling frustrated at her difficulty letting herself be cared for and wanting to make more grace for what that's like to have that kind of time warp thing. You know, and there's times I'll say to her, like, you used to change my diapers. The least I can do is schedule you with your cardiologist. You know what I mean? Like I try to like play it that way, but I think there's, I think it's, I know my work is to give her space to have, to, to wrestle with it in the ways that she needs to um, and to maybe resist the urge to be such a freaking bulldog. That's, I think, how I tend to do things, especially when I'm anxious. You know, so I'm aware that like part of it for me is I'm anxious. I'm sad. It's hard to watch mama's age. It's a blessing to get to watch our mom's age, but it's really hard. And so I know that's, you know, that my desire to kind of manage, I think, can be a defense against some sadness too. Totally. Yeah. I listened to your podcast with your husband talking about becoming empty nesters. And your husband was talking about that a lot, like the like Mm -hmm. aging process and, and how that makes him feel. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately. And it's like, um, aging is such a gift, Mm -hmm. you know, but at the same time, it's kind of scary because like you just realize like you're losing, you lose control of a lot of things that when you were younger, you thought you might've had control over, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Right. So I'm watching. Yeah. That's, that's what my mom is wrestling with. It's what I'm, I'm watching her wrestle with and certainly right in my own, my own process, right? Like the, you know, my own transit, certainly a transition to empty nest is a loss of control, 
you know, control and connection, right? Like, I don't know what my kids are going to have for dinner tonight, you know? Like, I don't, it's just so, it's so strange that you have these people that I literally made dinner for, for years and years and years. And now I'm like, I wonder what they had for dinner last night. Although I do know my daughter had sushi, so I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm aware of the comfort I feel when I, when I hear little details, you know, Brian, my son tells me he did a little laundry. Like it's just, I love knowing those little details because it's like, those are the things I used to do for them. And so there's a comfort, like I, I still regulate, you know, my system is still kind of oriented around all of that. How do you handle like as the mom, both kids gone, you have a boy and a girl, like when you lead the communication or you give them space and let them call home, like how do you handle that? Yeah. So we went meta and that's what I would really recommend all parents do. So we talked about talking. Um, you know, we, we asked, like, I just asked, what do you, what do you want? Knowing full well that it would be trial and error. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we have, we figured some things out. Like my son has figured out, my son likes a daily check-in. So I, you know, I'm here for that. Love that. Um, and he doesn't care who initiates it. So there's no kind of like tenderness either way. But the thing that he's really clear on is when he has been home and then he goes back to school, he needs, he needs to be in charge of when he reaches out. Like he knows there's a little, there's some settling that he has to do. And so when we've separated, when we said goodbye, he needs to be in the driver's seat. And so I know not to reach out until he reaches out. Um, so just, you know, things like that, like where, and it's such a beautiful relational practice, right? To talk about talking and, and everybody can have their own wishes and wants, but the, the really the buck stops with the parent. It is the parent's job, I think, to ask the question and then tolerate whatever the hell answer you get back, you know, <laughs> knowing that you may have your own disappointment or anxiety about that. What about your daughter? How often does she want to be in contact? She um, were in for sure daily text contact. And then okay. I let her tell me when she wants to do a call. So she'll say in the morning, like, let's do a call today. And then we'll figure out when we're both available. Mm. But she's not – she's probably every other day, every third day. She's a freshman. Um, so she's – and I think for her in the beginning, there's a – I think she's got this battle inside where there's a part of her that really could talk to me or her dad a lot. And there's a part of her that wants to kind of stretch a bit and and knows that the conversation sometimes leaves her feeling a bit more homesick, you know? So she's kind of holding this like both Mm. and of loving it and feeling homesick and trying to figure out, do calls home, you know, when are they helpful and when do they kind of spike um, something that then she's got to figure out how to work through. I love that. I love that you just were like, let's talk about this. Yeah. How often are we going to communicate? Um, all right, last question on that, and then we'll move to some love stuff. Sure. Love stuff. Not that this love isn't stuff. love stuff. We love this love, is love stuff. stuff. Uh, how are you handling empty nesting, how you thought you would handle it versus how you're actually handling it? Okay. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think I have these like little flashes of when I was, you know, a hotshot young psychologist, and I would talk about family systems and family roles, and I would talk about these mamas, you know, these mamas who just wrap their lives around their kids and how important it is for a mom to have something of her own so that that way when her kids leave the nest, she's got something of her own. Okay, well, I did that. I wrote three books. I have a podcast. I have a this. I have a this. I have CrossFit. And I still am broken wide freaking open by this. So I like want to like whisper in the ear of my young self, like, uh-uh, you think you got... So, you know, I'm still being worked by this transition. And I don't know what it would be 
you know, if I had a different constellation of work outside of the home and, you know, interest, I have no idea how it would be. But what I will say is that my career does not cushion the blow. My career does not mm. keep me from aching and transforming and feeling lost, like deeply, like who who am I? Like really, like like if you took my there's this research that my colleague at Northwestern did um, around. He had a sample of people, like a very large sample of people, and he studied them over time, knowing that some of them would go through a breakup during that time, right? So he was longitudinally across time able to track people's self concept. So he would give them a self concept measure over time, and what he found is that around a breakup, people's self concept tanked, meaning that their ability to under, to describe themselves, to feel like I know myself, I know what I'm about, it tanked around the breakup and then went back up again. But that data I share all the time because I think it's very validating to people going through breakup and divorce, that feeling of like, who am I? Or that feeling like I'm not me. is I want to really normalize that. Well, I suspect if you took a sample of folks going through the empty nest, I bet, I bet that my self-concept score would be lower than it was when we were you know, parenting high schoolers or middle schoolers, because it just, it's that sort of like, not me feeling where sometimes it's hard for me to make decisions. Cause I'm like, wait, what do I like? What am I about? It's really interesting. So I've been um, kind of observant of that and therefore having to figure out practices that help me feel like me. And one thing that has been my best decision ever was I signed up for a dance class. Like if there's one thing I know about myself, I am happiest in a room with a bunch of people and music on and shaking our booties. So that's really, really helpful for me to show up and dance. You know, it's like, okay, oh, there I am. Oh, there's me. You know, so things like that. Like, or being with my girlfriends. I've got a girlfriend visit next weekend. That's going to be huge. Like, oh, that's me. You know, walks with my husband. Oh, that's me. So um, patience, you know, I'm trying to practice a lot of patience with myself and not pathologizing, like not saying that somehow my reactions are wrong or weird or bad. I've got, uh, you know, friends who are like, we're not empty nesting, we're free birding. And I'm like, okay, maybe I'll feel like that at some point. But right now, it doesn't feel like free birding. It doesn't feel like liberation. It feels like grief. Okay. That's, I'm not going to make that a problem. You know, that that is my, I'm going to be true to my experience and not somehow say that this is bad or wrong or sick. Yeah. And then some people might feel like that, that free bird. Oh like my God. hundred percent. Yeah. Like 100%. my mom for sure felt that because she, she did, had, she had us so young. Uh-huh. And so she was, she was still so young when we were out of the house and she was like, okay, I can live now, you know? Oh, I love that. Because she was, she was like 40 yeah. when we moved out. And so for her, it was like her whole twenties where a lot of us were living that free yeah. life. Mm-hmm. She didn't get that. So I her. love that. And I love that you mentioned your that career piece too, because that is advice you hear a lot. I mean, one of my favorite people I've had on this podcast, Michelle Eichert, she always mm. says like, do you know Michelle? Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. I love how she's like, you know, when your kids reach that stage where my oldest is 11 now and when they're like middle school, high school, and they're starting to have way more interest outside of you, her advice is like, get a new hobby, like find something else because this is natural and normal for them to do. And you're into this next phase and you just Mm -hmm. did that. You signed up for this new class. I love that. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Because that's, I I want all of us as parents to just be mindful of that, that our kids, our kids worry about us. Our kids watch us. And so that's another piece is I'm really discerning about what parts Mm. of my experience I share with them. Right. And I can, 
my daughter, you know, maybe like week two, she's like, mom, how are you holding up? And it was a beautiful question. And I was real careful about my answer because the last Mm -hmm. thing I want is for her to feel burdened or guilty, you know, somehow that she's done something to me. Because you're right, just as Michelle was saying, like it is natural and normal and it is incumbent upon me as the mama to fill my time, my heart, my soul is, you know, so that's, yeah, I think that's really good advice from Michelle. I agree. I mean, can you just like hang it up there though and be like, okay, my job here is done. My child asked me how I'm doing in this moment. If that doesn't tell you, you've raised this caring, Aww. kind human. I don't know what does. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I love it. All right, friends. I want to thank two before for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. This is a unique pre-workout that is made up of black currant berries grown in New Zealand that contain high levels of antioxidants called anthocyanins. Black currant anthocyanins are science-backed and benefit-packed. Black currant berries improve your endurance, they kickstart your recovery, and they strengthen your immunity. You can drink it daily 30 to 45 minutes before you work out. I just mix it up with water and take it before a workout. I am loving it. 2 Before is offering an exclusive limited time offer to our listeners. Big discount here, 30%. Nobody does 30%. 30% off 20 packs plus free shipping when you use the code Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y at checkout. Just go to 2before.com. That's the number two before.com and use the code Lindsay. Okay, love every day. 365 relational self-awareness practices to help you grow your relationship, heal, grow, and thrive. Did mm-hmm. I say that right? Yeah. You did. You did. Close okay. enough. <laughs> okay. Tell me about this book compared to your other books, Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back. What was the heart behind this book? Yeah. This is – so Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back are two books that you would, you know, more so read cover to cover. They're chapter books. You certainly can, you know, skip around. It's not like it's a fiction book. Um, but it is written more like a traditional book. This Love Every Day is a one-a-day book. And I swear, my whole life, I have loved a one-a-day book. It feels mm-hmm. like – it feels like the author has just really taken care of you. They want to make sure you've got just a little something, something, you know, every day. So there's something that feels really, has always felt to me quite generous about a one a day. And so it's really exciting to be able to create something that I have treasured over many, many years when others have done that. And it also, you know, it is, I've been cultivating this Instagram feed for many years now, which has, has really forced me to learn how to pull out one nugget, to turn the kaleidoscope around relationships and just pause it, okay, right here on this very small piece and bring that to the foreground and write about it succinctly and briefly and then let people kind of savor it and work with it, which has been a a really big growing edge for me as a as a writer and an educator. And so it's really exciting to see that that's, that's what people are getting. They're getting, you know, not every entry is going to feel like it is the most pressing thing that you need right now. But over the course of the year, they're going to be ones that you really vibe with and that really help you put a couple of puzzle pieces in, you know, in place for yourself and that you can work with. And this is, by the way, how we heal. We don't heal in the one insight that makes it all make sense. We heal in little glimpses of insight that allow us to create little shifts in behavior. And that little shift in behavior leads 
our partner, for example, to respond to us differently. And then we're like, oh, shit, that really works. And then that motivates us to do a little more and a little more. So this the model of this book actually parallels how we heal as well. So that's pretty, that's been fun for me to kind of put that together for myself. Of like, oh, this is really, this is what a therapeutic relationship is like. It's week after week. This is what healing of an intimate partnership is like. It's the little, you know, daily practices that help us feel more connected. As I was flipping through more information about this book, I was like, I have to get this book and I want to read it. I want my relationship to be stronger. But how do we get our partners to read a book like this, yeah. you know, cause mm-hmm. I do think that you're going to see more women picking this book up. Yeah. It's, it's also pink. <laughs> 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 so yeah, but that's, that is, this is not a new problem. I grew up in a house where my mom had a stack of self-help mm-hmm. books on her nightstand and my stepfather did not, you know, this mm-hmm. is, uh, most the, the vast majority of self-help, the vast majority of books in general are, are bought by women. And so for, especially for cisgender heterosexual couples, this is what I hear all day, every day is like, I'm in, but how do I get my partner to? Well, I think actually a book like this is, is a pretty good shot because all you're asking is let's take a look at this one page. And so, mm-hmm. you know, let's say, Let's say that you are really loving this idea of a daily practice. Well, maybe then at the end of the week, you pull out one that really spoke to you and you say to your partner, like, let's work on this one. I mean, who doesn't have time or ability to kind of just do one little baby bit, you know? So it may be that you do it every day of the year and your partner kind of tags in with you once a week. And can you celebrate their effort rather than feeling frustrated about why isn't it more? Because why? Because if, if your attitude is, why isn't it more, this isn't enough, that's that's going to make it harder for them to stay engaged versus you take the once a week and you build on it. And then you're twice a week. And then, and then you know, the hope is that like, I think this, this book for some couples will be like training wheels. Like this is what inspires a different kind of conversation. And then when you go on a walk or you're, you know, whatever, having tea together in the morning, the conversation feels a bit more easeful, a bit more vulnerable. So I think this is a great place to practice skills that then you will be able to do without having to have the book be the thing that prompts that kind of conversation. Can you give me like one or two examples of um, entries in the book where, is it like a conversation starter or or what? Can you give me some examples? Mm, okay. Um well, there's lots of questions. So not every entry has questions that are either self-reflection or discussion questions, but very often it is. So like, let's say the theme was around, um, there's a, a big theme in the book around advice versus empathy. I think so often when our partner has a problem with their dad or a challenge at work, we come in with advice because it's uncomfortable for us to see somebody we love just uncomfortable. Or especially for the if it's a lady in a partnership with a man, she feels like she's got the corner on the market of relationality. So of course, when he's talking about a problem with his dad, she's gonna be like, "Well, what you need to do is tell him this, and then this, and then this, and then this." You know, and we come in with the advice instead of the empathy of just like, "Oof, that really sounds tough. Tell me more." Or, "Oof, that really sounds tough. How can I support you?" So in an entry like that, the discussion question might be like, "When you have a problem." Like, can you think of a time when you brought a problem to me and you felt supported by me? What a cool question to mm. ask and kind of reflect on together. 
kind of scary ask- too. Oh yeah. I'm like, yeah. Oh, I feel like I would fail that test. Well, then when we are, whenever we are brave enough to ask our partner for mm-hmm. feedback, our partner needs to understand the vulnerability in that, the courage in that, and be like, oh my God, look at you asking mm-hmm. for feedback and to know that now I have a lot of power and responsibility to give you feedback in a way that you can hear, that doesn't launch you into shame, that you can work with, you know, that reminds, that, that conveys to you that I love you and I could use something a little bit different, you know? So you're right that asking for feedback is incredibly brave. And when we are able to, when we take the risk, I want our partners to respond carefully and gently and lovingly. I mean, asking for feedback in any realm is scary Yeah, because it's not all going to be good. (laughs) Mm -mm. No. And, and the fee, and it's an important reminder around you know, remembering that there's a space between our behavior and our character. Mm. So I did, you know, I did something that hurt somebody I love's feelings. And that is not the sum total of who I am. I am more than that thoughtless thing that I did. So I think that's helpful for the person on the receiving end of the feedback to remember. So if I think of a book like this or like working on relationships, if I were to sit in a room with my girlfriends and my husband were to sit in a room with his friends, and yes, I'm talking about heterosexual relationship right here, um, I think that we would all be like, more talking, Mm -hmm. (laughs) more shoulder rubs, and they'd be like, more sex, you know? (laughs) And I maybe even more so in the phase of life we're in um, with, you know, little kids and whatnot, but... I'm just curious, like, how do we find a good, is balance the right word there? Like, so that we're both getting those needs met. Right. That's right. Well, that, yeah, you have laid out kind of the um, normative, stereotypical way that it plays out, which is, it's a, it's a stereotype because there's, because it is a commonly, you know, experience. <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, I think this is something that comes up in the, there's one of the themes, the book is organized around nine, the entries are organized around nine different themes. And one of the themes is sexual self-awareness because that is a huge part of, it. I mean, think about, think about your sex ed. My sex ed was like super paltry. And um, my second book, Taking Sexy Back is all about sex and that I dove deeply into the U.S., um, sex education system. And it's mm. ridiculous. Like how, you know, how we all, we all need sexual healing. We all need more information. We all need a more nuanced understanding of our sexuality. But what it means is that couples are set up for just the experience that you're having where she says, I need to feel connected to have sex. And he says, I need to have sex to feel connected. You know, that's a very, mm. very common dynamic and nobody's right and nobody's wrong. And every sexual challenge is a couple challenge. And so the goal with something like desire difference, which is incredibly common, especially as you're saying in this stage of life with little kids, it's not at all uncommon for couples to have a desire difference. The goal number one is to not freak out, <laughs> to not say this means we're broken, this means we're doomed. Number two, to not play a find the bad guy game where the problem is you're too horny, the problem is you're too, you know, you're whatever, frigid or shut down or withholding. No, it is a couple problem. So number three is for the couple to kind of sit shoulder to shoulder looking together at how do we navigate this? And one thing couples need to do, I think very often, is 
is first and foremost grieve because there may have been a time pre these little wonderful babies, but these people who like take up all the oxygen in the room, there may have been a time before then where they had where, where you had a more more similarity, right? She may be grieving the loss of her of feeling her own sexuality. And she has memories of like, oh my God, I remember when I used to crave connection with you and touch with you and now I don't. So part of looking together at it is looking to is 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 making some space for grief to say I miss those days and sometimes in the space of grief and reminiscence that can be a little bit like oh so how can how might we tap into that and then there's a you know a place for very pragmatic conversations I love for couples especially couples with kids in the house to schedule sex and that mm-hmm. is not people get resistant because it feels like that's somehow not romantic or something but we schedule the things that are important to us and it can then become fun because if you know Thursday at 10, it's going on or whatever at 9, maybe 10 too late, whatever, Thursday at 9. I was thinking 10 a.m. <laughs> 10 a.m. If we know what's happening then, then it's like it's like a little, you know, hopefully it's in like a little lift. Like we, oh my God, we get to do this. Mm-hmm. We matter so much that we get to do this. And so especially I think oftentimes if, if she's the lower desire partner, mm-hmm. we've got to help her get out of the place where this is a duty, an obligation, one more thing to check off the list. We've got to help her really figure out what's her, what's in it for her, what's her skin in the game. And so, oh my God, last thing I'll say on this. No, keep going. Um, is that if the sex she's having doesn't feel particularly great or, God forbid, if it's painful, she Mm -hmm. cannot look forward to it. It cannot feel like anything more than a duty and a burden. So for a lot of of heterosexual couples, what we have to do is get out of the thing we all learned in the playground of first base, second base, third base, home run, the idea that there's foreplay, the stuff Uh. you do to get bodies ready for the actual thing, which is penetrative sex. No. Penetrative sex tends to be the least orgasm-producing behavior for women, for vulva-bodied people. Women are far more likely to have orgasms as women, you know, any woman who um, pleasures themselves, who has, who masturbates, who has a sex toy, you know, knows it is all about clitoral stimulation and really like working with what is on the outside of your body more so than penetration. And penetration plus clitoral stimulation is wonderful, but unless like. Everything that we've relegated to foreplay is the stuff that tends to feel best and be most orgasm producing. So if a couple has got that desire discrepancy and she's the lower desire and he's the higher desire and all they're doing is a little bit of foreplay to get to penetration, you're not going to fix the problem that way. So what a cool opportunity for a couple to become playful and exploratory and go to, we've got, we are living in a time of sex tech that is unbelievable. There's incredible Dame is one of my favorite sex toy companies. Get a sex toy, play, like, you know, kind of break up that script so that she's got something she really can look forward to because this is for her. This orgasm is good for her. This time is good for her. It's good for her to remember that she's more than a mama. She's also a woman and a lover. So that's, you got to get that buy-in. Okay. I'm curious about talking to your kids about not this specifically, but like just the whole topic in general. Mm, Talking about sex? Yeah. Well, I think it starts, I think this is another, I think, I think there's so many wonderful resources available to parents and to families. So I, for kids who are a little bit older, my favorite um, sexuality resource is Scarletine. It's a beautiful website, really thoughtfully curated because the reality is 
if your kids have a question about sex, they're going to go to Google and they're going to Google what they heard and it's not going to take them to a beautifully, thoughtfully crafted website. It's going to take them to Pornhub. And I, my heart hurts for all of the young people who discover porn accidentally or who have curiosity because that is not – we don't have to be anti-porn to be anti-porn for sex education. So mm-hmm. it puts yet one more responsibility on parents' plates to be you know, a thoughtful – um, wholehearted sex educator in their home. So, you know, it's like how much more can parents take? But anything a parent does to work on their own kind of reactivity and shame around sex is an enormous gift to their kids because then we can talk about vulvas and penises and we can talk about how good it feels when parts of our body are touched and we can talk about boundaries and we can talk about consent. I mean, consent starts, you know, I have a story about when our kids were little, we had a birthday party for my son and we had done like this like candy draft, you know, where you get to choose a piece of candy based on what your number was. And my daughter had like a top draft pick. So she had whatever piece of candy she wanted. And an older boy, because Brian is older, had a candy that he didn't want. And he was like, you know, he approached her and he's bigger than her. And he was like, don't you want to trade? Don't you want to trade? Did it, you know, like he was really pressuring her. That was a moment to teach consent. So I got down to her level and I was like, huh. It looks to me like you are not interested in making this trade. Can you look him in his eyes and tell him no thank you? And I said to the boy, look at her. Look at her body. Look how she's looking down and she's kicking the dirt. It looks like she does not want to make this trade. You know, like little moments like that have had nothing to do with sex, but it had to do with consent around giving and receiving feedback. So when we teach our kids how to give and receive feedback, how to notice, you know, how to know what's a yes and what's a no, all of that is setting setting the early template then for everything that sexuality then becomes later. All right, listen up. Lagoon Pillows. Oh my goodness. They are back to sponsor the podcast. And let me just tell you, Lagoon is the best pillow I have ever laid my head on in my 39 and a half years of life. I have looked for good pillows for a very long time. And before Lagoon, I was settled on a higher quality pillow I got at Target. Uh, I I mean, I've tried Tempur-Pedic. I've tried other brands. And this is by far the best. I think because it's so customized. You fill out a two-minute sleep quiz, okay? And whether you're a back sleeper, a side sleeper, a belly sleeper, however you sleep, these pillows are incredible. I have the Otter. My husband, Glenn, has the Fox. They are so perfect when you lay your head on them. And listen, if you want a more firm pillow, they have those options. If you want a more soft pillow, they have those options. And they even send you the filling so you can fill your pillow as full or as little as you want. It is truly customizable. And we all know that like sleep is so important. If you are not sleeping well and the thing that you are laying your head on is contributing to not good sleep, you need to fix it because we are all working really hard to pursue athletic goals and dreams and sleep is so important. So listen, go to lagoonsleep.com slash Lindsay and use the code Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y to get 15% off your order and just then come thank me for changing your sleep life because Lagoon is amazing. All right, friends, back to the show. And what do your kids think about like what mom does for work? 
I'm sure they've thought about it differently over the years. I'm sure it's been a source of embarrassment. Yeah. There were times, there was uh, one time when Karamo, I told my daughter that I once was interviewed by Karamo Brown, you know, from Queer Eye, and that she's never, uh. never thought as highly of me as in that moment, because that was when she was in a huge Queer Eye phase, and she was like, you what? That's <laughs> um, amazing. I think they feel, I think to them it's just normal. It's just normal yeah. that mom talks about this stuff, and you know, I, um, I think that my, I think as my kids now begin to have their own experiences of dating, um, I think in my mind... For a number of reasons, my mom was not safe to go to when I was younger to talk about dating experiences. And so I know part of my, in my mind, part of how I would heal that experience of myself was that I would, of course, be safe for my kids to talk about mm. this stuff with. And so they, my son does, and my daughter is just like, mom, I know, I know that all of Northwestern University relies on you for relationship <laughs> advice, but uh, <laughs> you're my mom, you know? And so she just, she's just starting to open that door. So my work then is to stay really calm when she does and not get too eager and not go faster than her, you know? So I think that there's been some, maybe just, I've had to kind of acknowledge that, yes, I can be a relationship expert, but it doesn't mean my kids are going to, you know, my, my best friend always says, you are the book on the shelf. You're the resource. We all, all of us as parents, as our kids get older, we're the book on the shelf. We are the resource and it is on our kids to come over and, you know, say, hey, I could use something here rather than mm. us imposing ourselves on them as they get older. You know, as they get older, you got to coach, learn how to coach from the sidelines and be brought in. And when you get brought in to realize, oh my God, this is sacred. Don't blow this moment. <laughs> Don't go into a lecture. Don't, you know, get too excited. <laughs> I love it. This is sacred. Yes. I imagine whatever your profession is or whatever you do for a living or what you love to sure. do, what you're an expert in, you just want to see your kids do things the way that you know that they'll be happiest in the yeah. long run. But I love that you say you kind of just like, you got to wait for them to come. Yeah. Um, do you have that in your own? Is there is there an area where you can get a little eager beaver about stuff or get a little direct, oh, more directly than? I mean, I think like with my work, not necessarily with my kids, but this is just a, a small, small example. Um, you know, I work with a lot of runners and I'm like, you know, when you see someone starting out and they're doing this, this, and this, and you're like, oh, you're just waiting to get injured and you want to just jump in and mm. tell them all the things. I mean, that's just a small example yep. job-wise. Yep. Um, but, you know, I asked this question the other day. I was like, what's um, – give me your best parenting advice you've ever given or received. And I talked to my mom about it a little bit and she was like, well, I mean, I think the answer is like, my answer is not anything I did or knew to do then. It's what I know now, you mm. know? And mm. so, yeah, there's just so much growing and changing going on here. And like you mentioned, yeah. when you were a younger psychologist and like all the things that you were saying and you kind of look back at what you maybe used to do, even if it was with good intentions and cringe sure. a little bit, which means that we've grown and we've changed. Great point. Such a great point because those moments of cringe can be moments of shame. Yes. And um, and we have to make sure that we also have a little moment of like, wow, wow. The fact that I can – the fact that I cringe about that shows my growth. Yeah. And 
and I can still repair. It doesn't matter if it happened. My uh, my son was bringing me something painful from his childhood um, just last weekend when he was home visiting. And, you know, I had to really regulate myself mm-hmm. to not spiral into shame, but to just be present to it and be like, I'm so glad we're talking about this. And yeah, I wish I knew then what I know now. I Here's how I wish I would have handled it. I, mm-hmm. I was able to stay in that conversation because, you know, because – I, it was like, I, I, it was, I knew it was a moment, right. Of like, okay, if I get lost in shame or if I justify my behavior, I'm not keeping that door open. So my best and bravest work right now is to listen to him talk about this, which is I think part of parenting emerging adults is like, you basically get this like 18 year review, (laughs) job review, (laughs) because part of what they're doing as they emerge is they're reflecting on their experiences to this point. And so I know uh, you know, yeah. So to stay calm and present, as you're saying, and to just be like, "Wow, that is cringy that I did that." I, I you know, and how cool that I get to be with you differently now here mm-hmm. today. Yeah, it's one of those things where my generation, you're like in between my, you're like right in, smack dab in between myself and my mom. I am, yeah, because my mom was so young <laughs> when she she had me. Otherwise, you'd be a lot closer to me. But, um my generation is like reflecting so much because of all the therapy and whatnot that we're going through. And it's also this, like, I want to understand like the things that I went through as a child that made me who I am today, but also like not be so hard on my parents because they were doing the best they could. And at the same time, you also a good heartfelt, I'm sorry, and I wish I would have known better, would feel really good to hear. hundred you know? percent. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the, one of the entries in the book is this idea of, yeah, holding on to that, what's, it's called a dialectic or a both and of, I didn't get what I needed in my childhood and my parents were doing the best they could at the time they were doing it. That's right. All parents parent to the degree of their healing, to the expansiveness of their awareness during that time when, when we are so, so, so small, you know, it is, it's, it's, it is, um, it's really hard to be, right. We have to be both compassionate of our parent and, and, um, honest about the impact on us. So, yeah. And I think that's, I think that can be, I think that can be done whether, and that can be done whether or not your parent is available for conversation about this. You Mm -hmm. get to heal from your childhood, Mm -hmm. whether or not your parents ever validate what you went through. It is not contingent upon them being able to witness you. You get to witness you. You get to surround yourself with people who can witness you. And it's not just about, sometimes it is about trauma. It doesn't always, it's not always about trauma. It is sometimes just about the role that you play, because everybody, you know, family systems tend to put people into roles, you know, and so looking at the role you played and what that kept you from developing or what you, who you, you know, believed you had to be at that time. So it's, I, yeah, I hear you that it really, that we can be deeply loyal and thankful to our parents while also really honoring that we've mm. got, that we've got some healing to do. Both those things are true. Yeah. You know, one of the last things I'll touch on is as a parent, you know, you think through this a lot because you, you dissect it a lot. And especially the ages of my kids were like, sure. I'm, I'm like, I'm at that place where I'm like, it's happening. I can do it. I can yep. do it right. Um, and my 11 year old's going through a lot right now. And I think, oh my gosh, if I would have intercepted this or whatever you want to call it three years ago, <laughs> oh, would it yeah. not be so bad oh, now? Know. You know? Yeah. 
And so you play the like, oh, and you know, I talk to my close friends about it and they're like, you can't play that game. Like you're here That's now, right. That's right. all That's those right. things. That's right. And thinking about back to that conversation you had with your husband and becoming an empty nesters, thinking like, did I do enough? Right. Did I play enough euchre? Did I teach right. my child poker? Did I, did we read enough? Like, how do you not overthink these things, be present and accept that you are doing enough and you have done enough. That's right. Okay, here's here's what helps me. So in what you're and what you're describing with your 11-year-old, like I just I so feel it. I'm so with you. And that is the heart of mindful parenting, right? Is meeting this moment with this child right now, but what our brains do is we fast forward. Oh my god, if this is a challenge at 11, what the hell is it going to be at 17? And we rewind. If this is what it like what did I miss as you're saying? What did I miss 3 years ago? And so when we get lost in either fast forward or rewind, what we do is we rob our kids of the opportunity to just have the experience. He's having a struggle. Let him have the struggle. You getting lost in your own shame and your own beating yourself up takes you, it it centers you instead of centering him, right? And he gets to... He, he gets to have a struggle. And if he doesn't have a struggle, you know, like it, it's something like it, then the, the struggle becomes, there's a risk, like this is the kind of like risky edge of self-aware parenting is that we can always draw a line from our kid's struggle to our parenting. And while there's mm-hmm. a space for accountability, we run the risk of robbing our kid from the, from the authority and agency to have a struggle that is just theirs rather than usurping it of like, see, here's, what, no, see, I did this. This is on me. Sorry, it was my bad. No, it's just his experience. He's having an experience, you know? So that's that would be where I would want a parent to, to go with that. Because yes, you deserve self-compassion for yourself, but if you can't get there based on what you deserve, at least get there around your kid deserve, you know, all of our kids deserve to have struggle. They deserve, you know, it's part of their journey. And how are we... We can't know. You can't know right now what twenty-one-year-old version of him is going to say about this eleven-year-old struggle. But there, there's something very, very important here for him in this wrestling, in this figuring out that will serve him, shape him, that he will get to tap into years down the road. Man, I know that I can't live in the future, but I just love to know what he's going to say. <laughs> the crystal ball. I know. Oh. Mm-hmm. oh. Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's hard, hard right now too because it's like, you know, when your kids are little, everybody's talking about the temper tantrums and all the stuff. And then it, you know, they get to an age where you're like, this is all private now, you know? And yeah. you can talk to your close friends about it, but it becomes a little more isolating in that way. Well, you're right. You're right. It's where partners, yeah, it's where I think partnership is really huge. I think it's why I want. I think it's one of the greatest gifts that parent when, when there is a two-parent family, whether it's a blended family, whatever, when there's another parent in the home, it's why I want parents to be doing their own work and relationship work because you're right. I think that then that's the, that becomes the kind of safe place to kind of hold and work on the story. And that's and it's hard because parents get triggered in different ways by their kids' struggles. So the more you have that robust cushion of being able to offer empathy, see it from your partner's perspective, mm-hmm. understand that their perspective has some benefit to it, you know, then that is, right, because you, you, then, then it keeps you from it, – it, it, you get support then. You feel supported and a, a bit less alone. But you're right. there. We do need to be mindful of these are our kids' stories and, and they've got to be 
yeah, participants and when and how they get shared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Our Us and our partners are both coming to this from our own past experiences. So we're triggered by different things and we see things differently. All right. Well, what, what's, let's wrap up here. What's something professionally or personally you would like to do that you have not done yet? I would like to get a 200 pound deadlift. Really bugs me. I haven't done that yet. Mm Oh, so I just started going to this alpha strength class, which at lifetime, which is, I think has, CrossFit-y yep. vibes, but it's not total CrossFit. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. It's a, it's, it's a thing. It's a thing. Yep. What is the best, most recent book you've read? My, the best, most recent book I read is one called Desire, all about desire discrepancy that we were talking about earlier by Lauren Fogel-Mercy and Jennifer Vensel. Do you have a trip or a place you recommend visiting with your family? We we love a Norwegian cruise. We have taken so many Norwegian cruises. I just we are a cruise family. We love the little daily schedule. We love the you know this the it's this like perfect blend for our family of structure and freedom. So anywhere that a Norwegian ship will take you. We just did one last summer in the Mediterranean that was fantastic. Nice. Okay, what's your last message to leave with the audience today? You get to be a masterpiece and a work in progress. You know, you're going to be the, the, your growth just reflects that you're, you're in it, you know, rather than being a source of shame. I want people's growth and commitment to this kind of work to be a deep source of pride. Dr. Alexandra Solomon, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Lindsay. You were wonderful to spend time with. Thank you. All right, friends. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Dr. Alexandra Solomon for coming on the show. If you want to check out her book, it's called Love Every Day. And I highly recommend giving her a follow on Instagram. She is dr.alexandra.solomon over there. You can also find me on Instagram. I'm lindsayhine626. And also... Um, this podcast, Why Is Everyone Yelling, is on Instagram. And learn more about this show and all the shows in our network at sandyboyproductions.com. Thanks so much for being here. And I hope to see you next week on Why Is Everyone Yelling? <laughs>